This is a No Land in Sight podcast production. Welcome to Is That Movie Still Good? The podcast where we take a movie from the past, give it a thorough rewatching, and ask the question, Is That Movie Still Good? Today, we're going to metaphorically reach in our closet, grab that old high school letterman jacket, put it on, and see if we still look good. And you guys already know, we still look cool. Today's movie, 2000's Unbreakable by M. Night Shyamalan. So, get ready for some fun as we unpack Unbreakable from 2000 on Is That Movie Still Good? Hi, welcome back friends. This is Is That Movie Still Good? Thanks for coming back and listening again. Um, before we get started, I want to thank everybody for all the support we've gotten so far. Thanks for listening. Um, shout out to all our homeboys and homegirls in Kentucky. We are ahead of Michigan. So, yes, thank goodness. Yeah, back in back in front, Kentucky. So thanks again. Keep it strong. Continue to check us out. Listen to us uh, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter. We've got a new Instagram account, so check that out. If you want to see uh, interesting things that Nate and I are doing, see the Faces behind the voices, as it were. Now, getting into this week, we're going to do 2000's Unbreakable by M. Night Shyamalan. So, Nate, what do you remember about this one? Uh, I, I really enjoyed it when it first came out. And, you know, of course, it was right on the heels of The Sixth Sense, which was a huge blockbuster. And, and you know, at this time, people are already comparing M. Night to, like, Alfred Hitchcock. A little premature, I think. Yep. But this one actually did carry well. And I, I really enjoyed it. Two big stars. You know, it, it was just a good movie. It had that little twist at the end. You know, what about you? Uh, yeah, so I was super jacked to see this movie in the theater. I had seen Sixth Sense. It was a huge blockbuster. I kind of picked up on what the twist was going to be early on in the film, so I was a little let down at the end. Like, why is this movie so good? But it was interesting enough that this movie with the two stars and the time it was released, I was jacked to watch it. Liked it. But walked away feeling a little bit disappointed on the first watch twenty years ago. Yeah, and I and I really have not seen this movie for probably twenty years. I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater. Yeah, and 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 um, tomorrow night, the you know tomorrow, like in real time, the new movie Mr. Glass comes out. Right, Glass comes out tomorrow, and and uh, that's kind of how we got into this. Um, was thinking about we we had this one in the hopper to do anyway. But uh, with Glass coming out, it seemed like a good time to think about this. Well, and the only thing I'm disappointed in is because I think we broke one of our like golden rules with this podcast. Because one of the things that we said early on with this podcast is we weren't going to do the same actor to you know in the same season, and now we're doing it two weeks back in to a back. Row. Yeah, back we're back. we're back to back on Bruce Willis. And uh, yeah, sorry guys, if you hate Bruce Willis. Uh, you know, sorry. If you like Bruce Willis naked, go back and watch Twelve Monkeys. He's not naked in this. No, 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 Bruce Willis button. This <laughs> no, movie. None no, of that. no, which is good. Which I think makes this movie a little bit better than Twelve Monkeys. Step above. Step above. So, well, and here's how this movie starts. Though, in, in like just like Twelve Monkeys, it starts with this kind of like uh, like verbiage, you know, kicking off the movie and telling you what's going on. So it starts out saying there are 35 pages and 124 illustrations in the average comic book. A single issue can range in price from $1 to over $140,000. Well, you know what? So, so does a baseball card. Yes, and that's has right. Has anybody ever made a movie about a baseball card? I have not seen it if it's out there. I would love to see a movie about the Honus Wagner baseball card. A Honus Wagner baseball card movie would be awesome, wouldn't it? Like, what, tracing that card through all the hands. It's- yeah, there's only like six or seven of those. Yeah. And, and, they, and, 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 you know, and you know why they're so uh, valuable, don't you? 
Why? Because there's none of them, right? Well, the reason that there's not that many of Honus Wagner baseball cards is because back then the baseball cards came in tobacco, tobacco. pouches. Yes. And, and yeah. Honus Wagner was very anti-tobacco. Oh, okay, okay. And so he immediately is like, hey, I don't want to be in a tobacco thing. And so he... You know, his cards all got pulled out. So that's why his gotcha. card is so valuable. And he's a Hall of Fame player. Too. Right, right, right. But yeah, anyway, so. Well, I did not Wagner, know that story. That's yeah, a great story. Uh, yeah, so that's why, why uh, the Honus Wagner card is so valuable. But then it continues on to say 172,000 comics are sold in the U.S. every day, over 62 million each year. The average comic collector owns 3,300 comics and will spend approximately one year of his life, his or her life, reading them. Boring. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm already bored. You're gonna you're really gonna show me a movie about comic book reading? I came to watch a movie and I'm getting comic book stats. <laughs> exactly. It's awful. It's terrible. And the funny thing is too, is is is, is he tries to M Knight tries to like tell you how important you know, comic books are with all these big stats, but things like, oh, the average reader spends a year of their life. I spent a year of, life, of my life on all of my hobbies. I've spent more of a year of my life reading, writing, painting. I feel like I've spent more of a year of my life on this podcast. Right. Already. I mean, already. We, didn't, we haven't been going that long. I spent a year of my life playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out on Nintendo. <laughs> right. So, so comic books immediately are completely overrated, in my opinion, in this movie. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, quickly to the stats. I looked at the stats. I, did, I don't know what the comic book sales were in 2000. I don't know if that $62 million is correct. But in 2017, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, it's less than $10 million a year. So I, maybe people are still spending a year of their life reading comic books, but it's, it's not no, as No, many. what year was that? 2000. Well, the, two, the, the less than $10 million was in 2017. Oh, do you think it spiked any with Stan Lee dying? Oh, that's a great, great question. I don't know. I don't have. I didn't get to the 2018 stats. Yeah, let's see how 2018 ends up. But I think if you look at like the the, the time horizon of comic book sales, you will see a spike in 2018 when Stan Lee died. But I think it'll like you know kind of like come back, back out. Down. Yeah, I think down. that's right. I think yeah. that's right. Well, so 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 here's the other big thing. You know, I, I I talked a minute ago about us using the same actor, you know, two times in a row, let alone in the same season. Is Bruce Willis really worthy of that honor? You know, if we, you know, if you had said we're going to break this rule at the beginning of the podcast and said let's put Vegas odds on it, and and who are you going to bet? I, I wouldn't have bet Bruce Willis. I just wouldn't have bet him. I, I, I will argue differently because I I think that when you look at in in our listeners, I think by now know our demographic, know we're guys in our forties, so you know, grew up late eighties, nineties, and up till now. How many other actors or actresses have been? that consistent it's like he's been here the whole time with us and he's been pretty good that whole journey yeah um tom hanks yeah yeah so so here yeah no it's funny that you brought up tom hanks because here's something that i wanted to ask you so so bruce willis you know obviously started in moonlighting that's how we all got to right, know him when he right. still had his hair mm-hmm. with Sybil shepherd and he was great in that show we talked about that last week i made a list of the top five Actors who had significant roles in TV that easily transitioned into movies and I hope, became big stars. I hope you got bosom buddies on there with Tom Hanks. I do, I do. But just just as a disclaimer, we can't count DiCaprio. Okay, and Growing Pains. Because <laughs> right. because right. you know he was not you know he, he was not Kirk Cameron. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so or Alan Thicke. No, no. <laughs> no, neither one of those. He was not. He was not up to their level. So anyway, so my top five. Yeah, so I do have Hanks and bosom buddies. He's my number two. Okay, what else you got? Uh, Clooney's got to be on there, right? Clooney and ER, number okay. four. All right, yep. very good. And of course, uh, we got Bruce Willis. He's got number three, Moonlighting. Okay, all right. Number three, so, Moonlighting. All right. Um, 
I don't know what else you got. Number five? Number five, Johnny Depp, 21 uh, Jump Street. Yeah, I forgot about that one. I forgot yeah, about Yeah, and I'm not yeah. a huge Johnny Depp fan as far as like what he's done in Hollywood, but you got to respect the guy. He, you know, right, he no, was well, good he, in 21 Jump Street. Right. He's still significant. For sure. But my number one. Okay. Any guess? No, go give it to me. Denzel. Oh, Denzel yeah. Washington, yeah, yeah. St. Elsewhere. I forget about him in St. Elsewhere. That's it was so long ago. So long it was ago. so long ago. I mean, yeah, it was so long ago. So anyway, there, there, there is a, there is a, a, a lot of, well, not a lot. I, I can think of five. But there, there is a special group of, like, actors that we grew up watching them on TV, and then they immediately moved to, like, movies and were immediately successful. Yeah, and they've been A-listers the whole time. And they've been A-listers the whole time. Well, and, and here's another interesting thing. So the the female lead in this movie, Robin Wright, Robin right. Wright Penn, whatever, right. um, she has a big TV career. She actually started on Santa Barbara. Yeah, soap opera. yeah, she did a lot on TV if you look at her filmography, for sure. Yeah, and so so she's not married to Sean Penn anymore. I no, think. no, no, no. They're, they're, what, no. Whatever happened to Sean Penn? Is he still, still, I mean, is he still, I mean, I'm assuming he's still alive. That's a great question because there was a period of time where he was nominated for Best Actor every single year and he never showed up. And, but I, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. What's he doing? I mean, does he have like a garden? Is he like growing bonsai trees? It's like, I mean, what, what's the guy doing? These I don't days? know. I mean, is he, is he still punching people out, knocking cameramen around? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? So, so anyway, we get through this opening kind of like part of the movie where it's like kind of like telling us. And, and it's and it's funny because it seems like there's so many movies these days that start with this kind of words across the screen to lead you in. Um, I, I personally think that, that the, the root of that is Star Wars. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. I, that's the first one that I really remember that didn't start out with a, a title with credits for the actors and actresses and directors and stuff and just went straight into some storytelling. And, and I'm actually okay with that. I really... Kind of like a movie that gives me a little backstory, doesn't waste my time with unnecessary scenes trying to tell a story, or maybe even not unnecessary, but scenes I'm not going to want to rewatch later. You know what's really confusing, though? What's that? A movie like that that starts out with those mm-hmm. that you're watching in closed caption. <laughs> that is read. That is because yes, you're just like reading the whole time. It's like being at the library and it's like, oh, I gotta read. I gotta keep up with the stuff. To quote the great Beavis, if I wanted to read, I'd go to school. <laughs> exactly. So, so the movie starts after the, the opening credits at a department store in Philadelphia in 1961, and Elijah Price, the Samuel Jackson character in this movie, he's born. You know, so mm-hmm. mom, mama's having the baby. And uh, the doctor's played by Eamon Walker. Mm-hmm. You know Eamon Walker? Yeah, I, I, know, I, 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 know, I know a little, little bit. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing yeah. it right. But he was on that show Oz. Remember right, the prison thing? show. The yeah. prison show from HBO. And here's a funny thing about that show. So um didn't spawn a lot of great actors, but it did spawn some of the greatest insurance commercial spokesmen of all times. <laughs> all right. Because all right. <laughs> the guy that's in the Mayhem commercials Yeah, the Austin, Mayhem guy, yeah. Yeah, the Mayhem guy, Dean Winters. Yeah. He was on that show. Sidebar, I hate those commercials so much. <laughs> yeah, Mayhem. Why are you yelling at me about every activity I'm trying to do? Yeah, exactly. And then J.K. Simmons, right. who's, 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 you know, won an Oscar. Yes, you know, great he, actor. He's done some good things. But, you know, he also does the farmer's insurance right, commercials. Right, right. So what is it about about this like 1990s HBO prison show that like has spawned you know In- all insurance, these insurance commercials. people. Yeah, I don't know, it's yeah. just kind of a weird thing. But anyway, Elijah comes out of the womb with broken bones. I mean, the doctor actually thinks that Mama dropped him, and of course, right. like, I didn't drop my baby. But you know, you know, he's broken bones, so we kind of already are kind of getting this feeling that you know he's fragile. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 Elijah is fragile. Then we get the heavy beat. Which is the first time we kind of hear the score, and this mm-hmm. movie's not real 
intense on the score. Even though the guy that did the score, you know, Hollywood guy, he's actually done nine M. Night Shyamalan movies. He's, yeah, they, they have worked together on all of, almost all of M. Night Shyamalan stuff. And James Newton Howard is yeah, his name. Yeah, James Newton Howard. And he is a very prolific um, composer. And he's it's done some stuff that's really great. Like, he did um, all of the Christopher Dolan Batman movies. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think... If you want to look at a score with the movie, I think Dark Knight, the score, and that's one of my favorite things about that great movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so I, and, and so maybe the score was used well, though right. it was minimal in this movie because it's only really – I only remember two times in this movie the score really getting to me. And mm-hmm. it was one during the opening credits. Right. And then later in the movie when Bruce Willis starts realizing that he's a superhero. Yeah, yeah. He uses they use the score a couple in a couple of scenes and we can talk about those as we get on, but there are a couple of dramatic scenes where the score is effectively played. Yeah. And and so the the, the after the opening credits and the opening score and all that kind of fun stuff, the scene cuts to Bruce Willis, he's riding a commuter train. His character's name in this movie is David Dunn, right? Which I don't think really means anything, except that I think I think it is important because it's alliterative. It is and, alliterative. And comic books um, traditionally use alliterative names when you start talking about like alter egos: Peter Parker, Bruce uh, Banner, um, mm-hmm. Lois Lane, Lex Luthor. There is a ton of alliteration in comic books, and so I think that played in here with the decision to to name the character David Dunn. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. That's a good observation. And and, he, and and we know something's wrong while he's riding this train because the train starts shaking and he starts looking around at people like doing this Bruce Willis stare. And, and then all of a sudden it switches scenes to this boy mm-hmm. watching TV. He's flipping through the cartoons and he like flips through different channels and he gets to this like news channel this is showing this gigantic train wreck right. on this train coming from New York to Philadelphia. And it says whatever, you know, train 177 or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And he runs into the kitchen and he, see, he sees this note, dad's on train 177. Yeah. And so, you know, the kid obviously starts freaking out. He's emotionally shaken. But you know what? I really don't care. Because... I don't care about kids in movies. Okay. <laughs> do, 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 I mean, has there ever been a kid in a movie that you actually cared about and a kid associated with? Oh man, that's a good question. <laughs> I got to think on that for a minute. That's a excellent question. I want to go back a cu- for a couple of minutes here, though. I think that's a great question. I'm going to let that bake and think for a minute. But I want to go back to that opening sequence where he's on the train because one of the most frustrating things for me in watching a movie is a wasted scene. And I think that scene was a total waste. What's he's, stupid? It's totally dumb. He's sitting on the train, and this really attractive young lady yeah. comes, and she stands up to put her bag in the overhead compartment, and you can see her her belly, and she's fit, and she's she got this tattoo, tattoo yeah. which I think in two thousand times you, that was really kind of a risque. Hey, now what's yeah. happening, girl? And so then he takes off his wedding ring and. Slides it away, and he tries to hit on her. And the only cool thing about that scene is what what they do with the camera is it's it's set in between the seats, and it pans back and forth where you can. When he's looking at that little kid, yeah. little, little girl, making eye contact yeah. with her, yeah. And so he hits on her, and all this total waste. And also, we find out that that lady is a sports agent, and she could have been any other profession in the world, and I would have bought it if she if she'd said, "I'm a neurosurgeon, and I'm going to." 
do a special surgery in Philadelphia, I would have bought it. I didn't buy her as a sports agent for one minute. Well, and here's and here's what makes the scene even worse is because she describes this cornerback, not quarterback, right? Cornerback from Temple University that's like six two. 200 something pounds, runs a 4-3. Runs a 4-3-40. And we actually meet this guy right. later in the movie, and he's none of those things. Right. And it's, <laughs> and it, and it's totally irrelevant. Like, yeah, if, if, it's if, if it referenced back, then I'm like, okay, maybe that scene matters. But ultimately, that scene doesn't matter. And all you had to do there was show Willis just sort of pensively looking he at the window. He could have done a crossword puzzle. Well, he could have he pulled his wedding ring out of his pocket, flipped it around, put it back in, whatever. We would have figured it out. So that scene bothered me from the start. Now, the other thing about the kid is, when you were watching this movie and re-watching it, did you have to stop and think, wait a minute, is that Haley Joel Osment again? Like, why is he he cast the same looking kid? I did, did. and the only reason I was able to convince myself it wasn't Haley Joel Osment, because the kid was a little bit younger and this movie was after success. Right, right. But I was like, the whole time I'm going, I recognize this kid from somewhere. Was he like in a Life Serial commercial or something? It's like, I don't, yeah, and and he's just, but he's that prototypical dorky 90 kids with his bowl haircut that's just overly emotional and like, yeah, I mean, and, and we'll talk about the kid more, but completely useless character in this movie. Yeah. Completely useless. Well, there's there's a couple of scenes that I think he's valuable, but it's all tangential to what's really important. Well, yeah, and so 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 Don wakes up at the hospital after after the train wreck, and now now he's got another is another doctor who's played by Michael Kelly, uh-huh. who name won't mean anything to anybody, but when you see him, you'll recognize him. He's been in tons of stuff, yeah, yeah, a lot of TV stuff. You know, you you would totally recognize Michael Kelly, and he tells Don that he's the only one to survive the train crash, and he doesn't have any broken bones now. Right. One guy was sur- had lived, but he was about to die. He, yeah, and he was about to die. The great thing about that scene, I don't know if you noticed this, but they 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 pan to Bruce Willis sitting on the table. Where well, you can a, actually see the other guy. The die. guy, and, and there's just blood seeping out, and his bandages becoming red with blood as it's pouring. Is out. Is that ER it. protocol? No, we need to ask. No, we, we got to have a curtain on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't ever remember being. Anywhere in a medical environment, doctor's office, hospital, whatever, where you can see another patient. Yeah, yeah. Maybe mass trauma, that, that stuff maybe happens, I, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, people can correct us if we're wrong. But, um, but in, and here's sort of the thing that I've noticed is that Bruce Willis didn't have any broken bones, only guy to survive the train crash. Even if he doesn't turn out to be a superhero, his shirt was very wrinkled. So definitely he's not Iron Man. No. <laughs> right, no. You get it? Yes. You get it? Yeah, you get it? <laughs> I saved that one all week. Okay, good. Don't worry. I saved that one all week. And, and, and as, as Dunn's leaving the hospital, we meet Audrey, who's, play, who's played by... Uh, Robin Wright. Robin Wright. And, uh, you know... So what do you think about her career? I, I was just going to ask you the same thing. I am not a big Robin Wright fan. I have a good friend who has always had a lifelong crush on Robin Wright from Princess Bride days, and that's a great movie, and she's great in that. But past that, she's had a a nice career. She's done some good movies, but she's never been anybody I've been particularly fond of. Well, when you think about her her first couple movies that made her famous, I I, I never saw her on Santa Barbara, full disclosure. Right. Me neither. But Princess Bride, great movie. Everybody loves Princess Bride. But she was kind of a jerk to, uh, what's his face? Yeah, the Carrie Always. Yeah, what was his name in that? Uh, oh, what was his name? Oh, I don't know. But she was kind of a jerk to him. Yeah. And then Forrest Gump. Right. I mean, gosh, she treated Forrest 
Awful. Of course. Awful. And then we get to Unbreakable. Yeah. She's, She's... Yeah, you know, and then and then after that, she kind of did some other things. She did Moneyball. I, I, she was in the Wonder Woman and Blade Runner movies. And, of course, we talked about House of Cards. In the House of Cards, she's not very friendly. No, she's not. Yeah. i tell you a movie of hers that I really like, and I would like to go back and rewatch it. Watched it once. And it was when she was married to Sean Penn. He directed this movie, and it's called The Pledge. And it stars her and Jack Nicholson. And if you can find it anywhere, I would recommend it because I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you on, on her. I mean, I, I, I think she's a good actress, but she's not an actress that I like. I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. So, I mean, and, well, you know, I mean, she's had a good career, so, you know, I'm not, I don't want to knock her too hard. Uh, and, and but but to your point, in this movie, it's, it's a totally irrelevant sort of plot line. She's a, a, a wife that they're having some marital struggles, and otherwise there's not much going on with her. No, not really. Not really at all. Uh, you know, Don, so, so, so Don, Bruce Willis's character, he decides to go to the memorial service for all the people that died mm-hmm. on the train. And as he's leaving the church, there's a note on his windshield. Right. And he, and he takes the envelope and he, he opens it up. And it's a really fancy envelope. It looks like a wedding invitation. When he opens it up, it says, how many days of your life have you been sick? Yeah. How many days of your life have you been sick? I, I enough. I, I don't know the number, but I mean, enough. Well, and you know, and, and, and there's a theme that kind of underlines this movie where he's also kind of like sad when he wakes up in the morning and things like that. And I, I know this is kind of my behavioral science kind of background, like coming through. But, you know, maybe if you've been sick a few times and then got to feel good again... He wouldn't be sad all the time because you know what one of the best feelings in life is? When you can finally eat again after you've been sick. <laughs> when you've been, yeah. When you've been sick and then you start feeling good again. Yeah. That's when life is at its freaking peak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got another theory about this and I'll get to that as we get into some other plot stuff too. But, but he is very brooding and emotional throughout this whole thing. He's not really a happy dude. No, he's not. He's not. And, and it kind of, like, carries the whole movie. It's kind of, like, gray, dark. Right, right. You know, and just kind of his mood and his feeling about himself and his feeling about his own life. It's kind of this kind of, like, theme. Kind of, you know, I, I, I've used this analogy in, in other things I've talked about before, maybe not on this podcast. But if you think about a bagpipe. Yeah. A, a bagpipe has lots of noise and lots of sounds and notes, but there's always kind of a hum mm-hmm. that's happening right. underneath the bagpipe. And that's kind of how Bruce Willis's character is in this movie. There's just this hum that's constant and consistent that he's just not satisfied. Yeah. And 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 you kind of feel for him a little bit. You kind of develop empathy. Yes. Which, in a way, I kind of have to give M. Knight a little bit of respect here because he does bring me into that character. I think that's right. I, I, we have so far just bashed this movie to no end, but this movie's really good. And uh, there's a lot of things that M. Knight does great in this movie, and that's one of them, is this brooding character that Bruce Willis is, you do sort of feel empathy for him and empathy for his situation. Yeah, and and, and, and and Don's intrigued by the note. And yes. so, you know, he he gets to his work next day. Now, he actually works – he was a college football player, mm-hmm. and he works as a security guard at the stadium. And it's not Temple. No. It's, it's in Philadelphia, and he's always wearing – his jacket always says FSU. FSU. So do you know why that is? Why? No, I have no clue. Okay, so the state – this is my – I can tell you some fact and then extrapolate. The field, the stadium where they um, 
film all of that is called Franklin Field, and that is on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Home to your fighting Penn Quakers in football. Oh, yeah, More yeah, impressively, really, it's home to the... Um, actually, know a guy that played for Penn. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. yeah. And home to the Penn Relays, the, the world-renowned Penn Relays. So my thinking is it's all at Franklin Field, so it probably stands for, like, Franklin State University or something like that. Yeah, all the, fictional... Yeah, made-up thing. Except I kept thinking... Man, Florida State doesn't have green in like this isn't in Florida. I kept thinking Florida State. Yeah, it was confusing they used FSU because that's way too big of a brand, especially in two thousand. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, because I mean FSU was huge in the nineties, right? Yeah, you would have thought they would have done something else. And I kind of funny now that we're talking about it. I think I actually remember that when I watched this movie, being confused. Yeah, by the whole FSU thing. Yeah, and quick another quick note on Franklin Field. It's the oldest stadium in America. Really, oldest built in eighteen ninety five. Wow. Yeah. How many is a seat? 50,000. Oh, all right. Approximately. Oh, yeah. always, always, always some fun tidbits here on the podcast. That's right. You're going to yeah. learn something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so, you know, he was a star athlete at this college, you know, wherever right. it was, you know, the fake FSU. But he goes to his boss, and he, not his boss, but like kind of the uh, secretary where he, where he works, and he's like, you know, it was this like old lady working yeah. on her computer, yeah. pounding away at the keyboard. He's like, have I ever taken a sick day? She's yeah. Like, you know, I'll get back to you. And find out that he has like has never taken a sick day. Mm-hmm. And kind of to my question earlier, you know, I can't remember. I think I've taken one sick day in the last twenty years. I don't think it's that big of a deal to not take a sick day. No, I don't think it is either. I think I've taken two in my career of spending twenty five years, you know, post college. So I don't think it's that big a deal. And if you never took a sick day, you'd know I've never taken a sick day. Yeah, I mean, unless you're incapacitated, you go to work when you're sick and you let them send you home because then you don't have to take the sick day. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but the, the interesting thing, this did kind of start sucking me in, kind of what we were talking about a moment ago about how I'm starting to like connect with this character, this David Dunn character, because I'm like, Oh, well, he's never taken a sick day. I've barely taken a sick day. Maybe I'm a superhero, maybe, too. Maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah. I'm a superhero, Maybe I too. can survive a train wreck. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm buying into this character. I'm getting engaged in the movie at this point. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, great stuff. I want to go back to the note on the windshield of the car. And we're going to start to see a theme here with things that involve um, Elijah Price, and that is the color purple. Very easy to see, and there's a lot of purple throughout this movie. The envelope is purple when he opens up the, the inner, inner lining. Um, Elijah's all bathed in purple throughout this movie. Even the, the lady in that initial train sequence that I hated so much, she's got on a purple shirt. So he uses purple for Elijah Price, and he uses green for David Dunn, very much like a comic book. Uh, just like in comic books, each character kind of has this theme color surrounding them, and we'll see that as we continue to go on through the movie. Well, and, and what's weird about that is it's like purple is typically the color of royalty. Yes. And so he's kind of given the color of royal, royalty to the bad guy. Yeah. And my, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is uh, there's a scene later in the movie where Bruce Willis and um, Robin Wright, they, they're at on a date, they're like trying to patch their marriage up and they're like their first date. So he asked her, what's your favorite song? And do you remember the song he said? It was Prince song. Soft and wet. Yeah, Prince. And I was like, song. he had to put that in there to yeah, tie the purple, purple situation yeah, in. Yeah, to tie the purple in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, M. Night does well with this movie. I mean, it's kind of a shame. I mean, after this movie... M. Night does Signs, I think was his next one. Signs is my favorite and movie. And Signs is a good movie. Signs is a really good movie. And then he does The Village, which is a good movie. That's a good one. That's I, I figured the ending of that out early, too. So I don't know what it is, if I like if we think in the same way or whatever. But that one I liked, but 
And then after that was Lady in the Water, and I didn't even watch that one, and I haven't watched a movie since. I haven't either. Yeah. And, 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 and well, here's what's interesting about uh, the new movie, Glass, that comes out tomorrow. Right. And I, I, I read this three different places because I don't believe it. But, you know, it's, you know, the internet is your best resource. It's your His only budget, resource. <laughs> only resource. Um, yeah, the encyclopedia guy hasn't been knocking on my door anytime nope. soon. But apparently it was a $20 million budget to make Glass that M. Night completely funded on his own. Number one, how did you get Willis... Jackson and the other guy for twenty million, right? And right. still have like any like money left over for like film. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how accurate that is. So don't beat me up for it if if, if you if you hear differently. But I mean, he's had to budget his own movies very recently. Yes, yes. And and you know because he just had this like falling out. Yeah. Well, he was like you said, he was this wonder kid who was making these. Hitchcock style movies and and then eventually I think like you said I haven't seen a lot of them I know they didn't do well and they got horrible reviews a lot of them so I think once that happens if you want to keep doing it you've got to find your way to fund it and well and I wonder like because this movie that we're talking about right now Unbreakable he was writer producer and director mm-hmm. on now his first movie ever Praying with Anger he also wrote, directed, and produced. He actually starred in it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he does a cameo in Unbreakable, too. Every movie he shoots, he puts himself in a cameo, which I would do if I were director. I'm just Well, Tarantino you. does it. Yes. Hitchcock did it, too, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. It's, so it's kind of like that, oh, I'm such an awesome director, I can, like, place myself in a movie. But he, you know, he did it with his first movie. Now, Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. he didn't produce it. But then I guess he made enough money. But every movie after Unbreakable... For the most part, he's been the writer, director, and producer. And it makes me wonder at some point, and I'm sure he's collaborated Mm -hmm. within that structure, but when you're so fixated, I don't want to say arrogant, though I kind of do, but I'm not going to. But when you're so fixated on, I'm the writer, director, and producer of a movie, Mm -hmm. at some point, you're probably not collaborating enough because you put yourself on such a high pedestal that things begin to fade. It happened to Costner. Yeah. Well, I, I think it happens... This is a real thing with me for a lot of directors who get Final Cut. Like, they don't have anybody to check them, right? It's it's with directors like... Uh, I love Quentin Tarantino, but of his last three or four movies, if you have somebody there to check you and cut some of that stuff down just a little bit, it creates a tidier movie, a better movie. Like... The Peter Jackson King Kong movie could have been awesome, but it was three hours and it was just too much. Yeah, and so I too think much license. Just, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it, as with anything in life, if you don't have somebody to check you a little bit, you kind of can get off the rails and you can kind of go with ideas that maybe are not going to be well received. Well, well, what it is is you get caught in your own little like kind of funnel or bubble yeah. of what you think is creative and what you think is awesome. And you don't have that feedback that says, well, you know what, there's a much broader mass audience that you're trying to appeal towards. And so you might want to take this out and you might want to add this. And, you know, something that's just not so, like, singularly you. Right, right. Yeah. And and I, and I think M. Knight's, like, probably, like, his own worst enemy. 
Right, probably so. And in that, yeah, you, you do fall victim to your own vanity, I think, in all of that. Yeah, and, and, and Split, did you see Split? I haven't seen Split, full disclosure. I wanted to see it, but I, I, I've never seen it. Me too. And apparently Bruce Willis has a cameo in that, it, yes, as David Dunn. Right, right. Yeah, which sets up for you know Glass tomorrow. But um, I, I, I kind of feel like Hollywood's given up on M. Night, and he's kind of on his own right now. Mm-hmm. And if Glass is not successful... What's, yeah, what what's next? his next move? What next? What's That's his right. next move? Right. You know, and and so what would what would make Glass successful? What would be the pull? 50, 100 million? What's he what's he need to pull in on Glass? You know, I don't know the numbers on that enough, but he basically has to just own it. That has to rule the box office for about 3 weeks, right? Just dominate everything. And this is a pretty good time to do it. Like we're getting some great Oscar movies that are out there that people are going to go see, but there's not really a lot of mass audience Appeal. Aquaman's out, but it's been out for a couple of weeks now, so it's on the downturn. So, you know. Well, and, but I, I did check uh, two days ago mm-hmm. on Rotten Tomatoes because I, I kind of am a Rotten Tomatoes junkie because I like hearing what other people think before I spend my time on stuff. On Rotten Tomatoes two days ago, 37% rating. For Glass? Yeah. Now that's from critics. That yeah, 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 yeah. Now, but on the flip side... 96% of people still want to see it. Okay. So it might be one of those movies that the critics hate and the people love. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet. By the time our listeners are hearing this podcast, I think I think the jury might be... Yeah, the jury will be and, out. And, I think and, that's right. Out. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think the interesting thing about this movie, uh, Glass, coming up, uh, is to your point about the length of time between... The Unbreakable to Glass, a long time in between sequels. You've got two generations who were kind of invested in a couple of movies. Our older generation, we saw Unbreakable and we're like, oh yeah, that's that's. And then just a couple of years ago, Split was out. There's some younger people who watched that, and okay, this is going to tie into Split. So there's a really good chance at some crossover audience there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So we'll see what happens, but I really do feel that M Night's career. Hinges over the next twenty-one days. I think that's probably right. Yeah, probably right. yeah, I think that's fair. So, but let's go back to the movie for a minute. So, you know, we had, we had just talked about like you know Bruce Willis asking about his sick days, but then the, the scene changes again. Now we have a young Elijah. He's I don't know six seven years old. Mm-hmm. So Elijah, biblical name, right, right. Reference anything there? Yeah, they they actually reference that in there that uh, Elijah is a biblical name and he's prophet, to prophet, and he's yeah. gonna gonna um, foretell the coming of the Messiah, basically. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, that makes sense. So so Elijah is sitting in his apartment in Philadelphia, his arms in a sling, young Elijah, he's like six, seven years old, something like that. And he tells his mom, I'm not going outside again. I don't want to get hurt again. They call me Mr. Glass because mm-hmm. I break like glass. Mom won't have any of this. Right. My mom's like, eh, nah, 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 nah. We're not going to have any of that. If you make this decision to be afraid, you will never turn back, son. Your whole life you will be afraid. I got a present for you. On the bench across the street. And she takes them to the window where they can see across right. the street into the playground mm-hmm. where all the kids are playing. And there's a wrapped package on a bench. Purple and white. Yeah, purple and white. And she says, "You, if you want it, you got to go out there and get it. You know, Elijah shows his courage. He walks out to the park. He sits down and he opens up the package. What's inside? It's a comic book. Of course. Do you remember the comic name? book movie. Yeah, do you remember the name of the comic book? Oh, I don't know. It was 
Active Comics. Active. And it, it was a play on Action Comics, which was the first Superman. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fun. Uh, and, and his mom shows it, and, like, you know, and, and this is funny, because this is where M. Night tries to, like, plug himself in, is, like, you know, because his mom actually says something like, read the comic, it has a surprise ending. Right, right, yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, hey, good job, M. Night. Yeah, because we already know that your movies have surprise endings. Right. That's your whole shtick. And she tells him that every time he goes out to the park, and every time he'll leave the house, there'll be another comic book mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. So she's just trying to motivate him. And then we cut to Elijah as an adult, and, and Samuel Jackson's running a, a comic book Comic book store, like a high-end comic high book end. art situation. Yeah, and there's this guy in there that's wanting to buy this print. And and this this is where this is where if there's one scene in this movie, I just want to go up to M. Night and like grab him by his collar and go, You're an idiot. Yes. This is why you will not succeed in life. Mm-hmm. Is this scene. Yes. Because yes. you have this high-end buyer wanting to buy a comic book, and Samuel Jackson playing Elijah all of a sudden turns into Jules from Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right, no, right, because the guy sees it, and he's like, it's, and he explains the, the print, and because uh, it, it, it's like this print, and he's, he's explaining the drawing and how it was converted to comic book, and the guy, the, the buyer... Is right in. He loves it, and he's like, "My four-year-old son is going to love this." And then Jules says, "Wait, wait, wait! I'm not selling it to you." I was watching this movie, no joke. And when that happened, I was like, "What a dick!" I screamed that out loud. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he was totally using lines from, like, from Pulp Fiction, where he's like, "So you're going to tell me that you're going to walk into my place yeah, and do yeah. this and do that?" I mean, it was. So robbery. I mean, it was such screenplay robbery. And even for a man like Wait, you, who doesn't like children in movies, like, you can appreciate buying your kid a piece of, of art. Of course. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was terrible. Terrible scene. And it kind of, really kind of turned me sideways a little bit. Yes. For a little while. Now, I did recover because the movie is good. But I was like, wow, that's not Elijah. That's Jules. <laughs> I mean, that's total Sam Jackson, like, in all of his movies being, like, you know, hard, you know, Sam Jackson, mm-hmm. badass Sam Jackson. And in this movie, he's not that character, but you made him that character because it's cool to hear Sam Jackson right, talk Right, right, right. And this is, this interestingly, this is a movie shortly before, I think, Samuel Jackson became a bit of a caricature. Right, because he did Pulp, and then after that, he did this one. And he's got a, a filmography that is a mile and a half long. He's well, done so much. But this one, he's nuanced, and he's an interesting character, but there's so much of his stuff that is just kind of cookie-cutter, badass, Jules, uh, Sam Jackson. Well, and here's the thing. So, you, did you know that Sam Jackson movies have generated more box office revenue than any other actor of all time. I did not know that, but I believe every word of it because he's yeah. been over in so many. Over 16 billion. He's been in yeah. over 100 movies. But as of 2015, movies that he's been in, at least had a play, a role mm-hmm. in, has generated over 16 billion in revenue. But I agree with you. I Let's talk about Sam Jackson. Yeah, I was going to say. I, like, I don't want to get into his like super deep filmography. I mean, right. The guy goes deep. And, you know, I like the guy. He's a great guy. But, you know, I, I do think he's oversold on being like so cool. Yes, absolutely, totally. I mean, even in his freaking like, in his, uh, uh, like credit card credit commercials, card, credit, credit card commercials, he's yes. like that. I mean, he, he is too much. And you said it a moment ago. He is a character. Mm-hmm. What do you think he does when he's at home? 
<laughs> I don't. I have Do no idea. Do you think he needle points? I mean, does he? Uh, you know, work in the yard. I mean, is he like that at home? I have no. Yeah, right. Like, what's he doing? He like, he's such talk a character. To his neighbors like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's like, uh, get your mail out of the yard. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you if you don't get your if, if you don't get your dog out of my yard, I'm gonna send some people to you know yeah. kill your dog. Yeah. I mean, it's like I mean, he can't be like that in real life. No, no. So no, I totally agree, and and that's kind of where I I like him. I he's very entertaining, but. Just a little too much. But on that subject, because we always ask you, what, what's your favorite Samuel Jackson movies? Well, here's the funny thing. So there's so many to choose yes, from, number yes. one. And so here's a couple movies that I didn't even realize that he was in. Okay. And all of these movies are before he was in True Romance and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming to America. Mm-hmm, yep. I don't remember he, he, having he that. Plays, he plays a mugger that, that they take down with the broomstick, right? Like when he comes into the... Restaurant, the McDonald's oh, restaurant. Oh, the fake McDonald's? The fake McDonald's. He comes in there and he's like going to rob him. And then that's when they like do some Africa Kung Fu on him and take him down. Oh, I haven't seen that movie in so long. That's a good movie. Um, Goodfellas. Yep. I don't remember I'd forgotten Goodfellas. that. I saw that on the filmography. I can't remember. I it. don't remember Goodfellas. Patriot Games. I've only seen that once. <laughs> no clue. I don't know. Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. I remember that from him in that one. I yeah, for sure. Jurassic Park. Uh, Loaded Weapon 1. <laughs> Because the second one. <laughs> I, I barely remember. But, I mean, this guy's been in so many movies. And, yeah, but he's kind of, he's like, and, and I think that's this is why this movie works well, and this is why him and Bruce Willis work well. And we talked about this last week with Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, is Samuel Jackson's another one of those characters that has no problem taking a part where he's only going to be on the screen for 30 minutes. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah so he might not even be home yelling at his neighbors because he's working so much. Yeah, you know, it, it, he's a busy man. I'm kind of bored with his, like, oh, I'm so cool shtick. But I mean, he, he does kind of add up to, like, a lot of good things. I agree. And my favorite stuff of his is some of that, that caricature stuff. My favorite stuff of his is when he's been directed by Tarantino. Hulk, oh, Jackie course. Brown, uh, Django. It, it, he's ridiculous in that, but it's still fun. But one of my favorite ones of his that's a little under the radar is Black Snake Moan. Did you see that one I've with him and Christina one. Ricci? I've not seen really that one. good. Um, he's still a little. I bit like that. the Negotiator. Yeah, that's good too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's the thing. It's like I, I, some of his movies where he's more normal, uh-huh. and he's not trying to be Sam Jackson. Yes, I, I, he is a good actor. I I, I, I I know I'm kind of picking on him a little bit, but it's like I, I don't want to minimize the fact that he is a very good actor. Yes. You know, I, th- I think he's just been characterized a little mm-hmm. bit too much. And he's not afraid to take on that characterization. Right, right. He's, he's owning it. I, I he's going to he own it. I think he kind of likes well, it. Well, one of the things that you always want to do is create your brand and then own your brand. And he has totally done that he's throughout done that. his career. Exactly, exactly. And so as this movie goes on, you know, Elijah tells Don that he's broken 54 bones in his body during his lifetime. And he's at the weekend of the spectrum. And if there's somebody that's at the weak end of the spectrum, then there has to be somebody at the strong end of the spectrum. And, of course, Elijah has identified Don because Elijah had, you know, witnessed and he keeps talking about, you know, a plane wreck. A plane plane wreck and a hotel fire. Hotel fire. And then the train wreck. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, Bruce Willis is the first person that's come out of it all unscathed. Now, and and, and David Don also was in this car crash in college. Mm Mm-hmm. And came out of it. Now, apparently, 
he got injured and he keeps fighting back with Elijah saying, well, I got injured in the car crash and I couldn't play football again and things like that. We'll find out a little bit more about that later. But Elijah tells David Dunn, hey, have you ever tried to develop your strength? And at this point in the movie, Elijah's not 100% convinced that David Dunn is a superhero. And of course, Dunn's still resistant to that idea because it's kind of foolish sounding. Yeah. But... Elijah just keeps showing up and keeps pushing this and keeps pushing this. And, and, and Dunn goes to his closet. He's at, he's at his home one night and he goes to his closet and he grabs a gun, which is a completely unnecessary right. scene. I mean, it does play into a, a scene later, but he puts it back up on the shelf. And then he, he gets this, like, uh, you know, football scrapbook out. Yeah, yeah. You know where my football scrapbook is? Mom's attic or non-existent or? On a shelf in my closet. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> Right. But you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I did not go back to look at it to see if I was a superhero because I, I pretty much know that I'm not. Mm-hmm. But Dunn thought that he might be a superhero, so he he looks at it and then he sees the articles about the car crash while he was you know there. And, and the thing is, with the car crash too, is his wife Audrey Robin mm-hmm. Wright was was in that car crash, right? You know, she was she was a part of that, and that's kind of one of the first things that that, that happened in the relationship. Well, and so he, they have this car crash, and he is injured, and he can't play football anymore, and so that's it. So one of the things, this is going to skip ahead a little bit and, and tie back in, but one of the things we learn about Audrey is she's a physical therapist, and she actually ends up uh, doing some work later in the movie on um, Elijah. But we learn that she hates violence, and she hates football, and so as, as we progress through this movie, we, we see that Bruce Willis really wasn't hurt, and he's kind of faked an injury so he could be with the lady. Now, this is the time in the podcast where we get love advice from Uncle Jim. (laughs) If you play football, and you've got a lady friend that hates football, you probably shouldn't be together. It's probably not going to work out, right? Like, ladies, if you love to go outside and canoe, and your man friend wants to sit and and watch... uh, movies and and play xbox all day listen to our podcast it's not gonna work out like don't allow don't try to change yourself into something that you're not and i think that's why bruce willis is miserable throughout this movie because he knows what he is and he gave it all up for this lady and that's admirable and that's something that in movies we see and and we like but ultimately he was trying to change his stripes for someone else and i think that's why he's miserable in this movie well and and one thought that I had about her whole, like, hatred of football was a little different. I, I totally agree with everything you said. Don't change yourself, you know, for somebody. Just be yourself. But was this also the first movie that addressed the violence in football? Mm, good question. I, and and I, I I was a football player. I love the violence in football. You know, so I'm not, you know, you know I, I think you should still be able to, like, break Tom Brady's leg if you get a good hit on him. You know, but... This was one of the first times we've heard about like a topic that now in 2018 is very. I mean, they yeah, made that movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is you know the the football violence and people are hurting themselves and blah 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 and all that. And I mean, five years ago the NFL was invincible, and now the concussion and violence situation has has made it susceptible. I think it's all sure. M Night's fault. <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> I, I think M Night started this. <laughs> Yeah, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, Dunn works at the football stadium in security. Yeah. And so he's still connected to the game of football. Mm-hmm. And so one day at a game, 
he he gets like a thing over his walkie-talkie that hey, there's somebody here to see you. They say you have a ticket for him, whatever. And he goes over, and of course it's Elijah, right? You know, and Elijah's like, I don't know anything about football, and and for some reason. Dunn spends like a lot of time with Elijah walking him around the stadium and like showing him like all these things and well he's being brooding and they're talking and and and, and he, he gets him a seat like in the upper deck because mm-hmm. it's the best you can do as a security guard mm-hmm. but then here's where the movie kind of takes like an interesting turn I, I don't know if I would call it a twist as much as just a turn Bruce Willis is now starting to like understand that he's you know, maybe does have a little bit of this superpower. Right, right. And so as he's walking by people, he's starting to kind of sense things. Mm-hmm. Like he senses yes. that this one guy like had drugs and was going to sell him at the stadium. And then he approaches him in a concession stand line. And this is where M. Night makes his cameo. Yes, yes. You know, and which this movie was made in 2000. So a year before 9-11. Uh-huh. But all I could think of was racial profiling. <laughs> Right, right, <laughs> He's totally right. racially profiling yeah, yeah. M. Night because, uh, you know, I don't know where M. Night's from, but but he, he he racially profiles M. Night, but M. Night had dumped his drugs into the trash can into the bathroom, uh-huh. and so he didn't have them on him anymore. But as Bruce Willis is walking around, he's kind of like sensing all these different things, and they're standing outside the stadium at one point while people are waiting to go through line, the line to get in. And Bruce Willis says, see that guy in the camo jacket? Mm-hmm. I, I I think he has a gun. Right. And he, like, specifically describes, describes the gun. Describes the gun. Like, black handle, like, silver pistol, whatever. And uh, so, and Bruce Willis tells him, if he has a gun, he's g- going to get out of line. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the guy gets out of line. Right. You know, as they're getting, because they start frisking people. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're going to start frisking people. And the, the, the guy gets out of line. And, and and as the football game goes on, you know, Bruce Willis goes back inside, and Elijah, after the football game, sees the camo guy mm-hmm. and starts kind of walking after him. He's kind of he's, like limping he's with hobbling his after he's him. He's hobbling after him. Hey, man. Hey, man. Slow down. Slow down. I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you. And, and they get to like the guy goes down the subway steps, mm-hmm. and Elijah goes to follow him down the subway steps. And just takes this massive spill. Yes. Massive spill. Falls, and you know it's going to be bad. It's going to be he's, just because he is not unbreakable. Right. And, and they're zooming in on his feet, and it's all he can do to, to navigate a couple of steps. And Which Bruce Willis didn't know, but how in the world is that guy going to get up to the upper deck to, to watch a football game? Exactly. Yeah I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that part was kind of weird, but... But as, as as Samuel Jackson, as Elijah's laying on the ground, like on the at the bottom of the subway steps, guess what he sees? He sees the gun exactly as described by David Dunn. Yeah, and so of course it reinforces his belief that no, oh, David Dunn is a superhero. superhero. Yeah, and 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 he's just going to keep pursuing that all the time. And even David Dunn is convinced at this point, or not quite convinced, but starting to feel that too. So. So the next scene, he's at home with his son, mm-hmm. and he's downstairs in the basement on the yes. bench press. Yes, I actually love the scene. I love this scene too. I, at first, I hated it, but as the scene went on, I was just into it. I loved it too. I, you know, and it's he's he's lifting weights, and then how much you put on there? Put some more. Put some more. Put some more in that. I've got everything I've got on there. What else do we have that's heavy? And then you see the paint cans taped onto yeah. the. I mean, it's so good. And this is a moment where I thought the soundtrack 
the score was perfect. It was very dramatic, and it, it meshed right in there. Yeah, and he kept telling his son to, like, stand away stand back, because yeah. it was so dangerous. And it's like, I mean, I understand bench pressing is dangerous, but you don't need somebody to stand 30 feet away. Right, right, right. It's, not like, it's not like the weights are going to, like, roll off of you and, like, hit somebody in the head that's five feet away. And, and one of the best scenes in this movie was actually a, a deleted scene, and I would encourage anybody to look this up. M. Night Shyamalan cut this because it was too similar to the scene in the basement, but but there's a scene that they shot in the locker room at the stadium where the football players are all in there, and Willis takes his son in there, and there and he starts bench pressing, and and ultimately like he's benching over 500 pounds, and it's it, it, it's amazing, and he's doing it you know just like he does in the other scenes, like he does it, and then he just stands right, no big deal, and all the football players kind of turn over and like. Whoa! What's this guy doing, man? And, and it, it, these all these football players are like, whatever he's taking, you need to get it because you can't lift that. And it's a great scene. And these guys, it, it's it was a great scene that made me kind of laugh a little bit and smile. And it would have been a nice comic relief scene. I understand why he cut it, but it's one of the best things they shot for this movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, and it's a powerful scene because it what it does is it it shows that David Dunn is starting to realize that he is strong, right, and that he is powerful. And that he maybe is special. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this question, though. Because you were a football player in, you know, in high school, so you, yeah. you were in the weight room. I, I was never a football player, but I've worked out a few times in my life. You know, back in the day in college, go to the, go to the gym and we're, we're working out. You know how much you can lift, right? Like, you get in there and everybody's like, try to lift this. All right, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like, he hadn't done that before then? Yeah, you would, yeah, I mean, well, he has like the beat up old weight bench in his yeah. basement with the old weights. And, you know, he doesn't have modern plates or anything like that. And, you know, I mean, I had that like in, I had the one, I had the weights down in the basement when I was a kid. Remember the ones that were like concrete and wrapped yeah, in plastic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that was my bitch press like when I was growing but up. But when you were, in, when you were playing football, when you'd be in the weight room with other dudes working out, you'd be like, well, I just did this. Well, let me try that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, well, I wasn't terribly strong. So it's like I would see <laughs> okay. those guys. But you knew what you could lift. I knew what I could lift. I knew what I could do. And I knew yeah. what, like, you know, that guy could do and that guy could do and that guy could do. And, and yeah. And, yeah, it's like you – it nothing was a surprise. It wasn't like you – because I think he starts out in that scene at, like – 200, 200 pounds or 220 or something. Yeah. something like that, and he ends up at, like, 350. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you, know, you don't just go from, like – a hundred pound incremental increase yeah. in the matter of like 15 minutes. Right. Yeah. That just does not happen. No. So I, and I, so I think, and he knows that too. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why he just realizes, wow, maybe, maybe, maybe glass is right. Maybe, maybe I right. am. Maybe, yeah. Maybe there is something special about me. And then he starts having all these flashbacks and like kind of thinking about, you know, between realizing his own superhuman strength and then realizing that every time he makes skin contact with somebody, that he can kind of see what's happening. Yeah, if they have some kind of, like, evil intentions or if they've done something bad or if they're about to do something bad. If he brushes up against someone who's not a criminal, then it's no big deal. But if there's something something that's not right, he, he gets this vision. So we mentioned a few moments ago that Elijah falls down the steps... And, of course, he needs physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that Audrey, Mm -hmm. Robin Wright, was a physical therapist. So just by coincidence, like the magical movie coincidence that happens in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. 
Guess who his physical therapist is? Well, right, because she was covered on his HMO, so he was able to go there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, and, and he immediately just starts asking her questions and, like, says something along the lines of, uh, well, your husband's name is David. She's at, and, and she's like, how did you know my husband's name? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so it's kind of just weird, completely unnecessary, because they really don't build anything off the scene. Nope, not at all. Nothing. Other than, like, that now she knows who Elijah is, and now she hates Elijah. Mm-hmm. And doesn't want Elijah around her husband or her son or anything like that. And then we get to the next scene, which it's just bad. We get back to the house. Mm-hmm. We get back to David and Audrey's house. And now the gun comes back up. Yes. Because the son gets the gun out because the son is so convinced his dad is a superhero. He actually points, what is it, a Smith & Wesson, like forty four or something, something like that? Like it, yeah. Some type of revolver. I don't know about, much about guns. But points it at his dad and is like, I'm going to shoot you to prove that you're a superhero. Right. Stupid. It, it was. It was. It was a super. It, it was a scene that wanted to be intense, and at the end of it, they all just sort of sit down, exhausted. And I watched that scene, thinking I wanted to feel something there, but I really didn't. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's because I, we already know that he's invincible, or if it was just poorly done. I'm just not really sure. It was flat for sure. Now, an interesting. You know thing, why it is though. What's that? Because nobody cares about the kids. That's, I guess, that's <laughs> nobody right. cares about kids in the movie. Get the kid out of the movie. <laughs> An interesting thing about that scene, though, that scene was inspired by a story about George Reeve when he played Superman a long time ago. He yeah, was, the original Superman. The original Superman oh. had a kid at some point with the gun come up to him while he was in costume. I don't know if he was filming or what, but he wanted to shoot him. Because he was Superman, and he believed that the bullet was going to bounce off of him. And ultimately, Reeve diffused the situation like Bruce Willis did in this by saying, you're right, you're right. You know, if you shoot me, it's just going to bounce off and hurt somebody else. And so, you can't do it. So, I, you know. Well, and bringing up Reeve just reminds me of the curse of superheroes and the yeah. curse of Superman. Because, like, because Reeve died. How did he die? Was it, like, somebody killed him? His wife poisoned him or something like that? Wife killed him? Yeah, so, yeah some untimely death. And I'm then, not sure. And then Christopher Reeve, yes, our, our uh, Superman from our generation, right. of course, the horse accident. Mm-hmm. And so, there for a long time, there was this curse of Superman thing out there. Yeah, for sure. And, and I don't think that... Don is Superman. No, I'm not sure that the bullet wouldn't have killed him. I believe the bullet might have killed him, but I think he's super strong. He's not invincible, but he's pretty close. Well, but he does have his kryptonite. He does have his kryptonite. We'll find out about here in a little bit, because, you know, according to Mr. Glass, to Elijah, every superhero has their kryptonite. Weakness, that's right. Every superhero has their weakness. So, after the kid pointing the gun at the dad scene, Don breaks into the warehouse... That the trains are in from the, you know, from mm-hmm. the train. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not sure what the point of this whole scene is. You know, but he goes back. He's walking through the warehouse, seeing all the trains that he survived. Mm-hmm. And we also see him, you know, more and more. And we've seen him like this before because it builds up throughout the movie, but he's wearing this parka. Right, right. And I, and I have to ask you a question. Okay, let's go. Can David Dunn beat up Max Katie? So I thought about this as we were working through this, and, and I know this is a thing that we have to talk about every, every time. I think we may have found Max Cady's kryptonite. I, I, I might put my money on David Dunn. I mean, you can't beat him. Like, unless Max Cady, unless they're fighting at a lake and Max Cady can throw him in, 
Dunn's going to win. Well, ironically, Max Katie dies in a lake. In a lake. That's right. That's right. So, but, I mean, Nick Nolte was able to beat him up in water. Yeah. I mean, so if you took David Dunn and you put him in Cape Fear and he's having to fight Max Katie with his feet in water, does Max Katie actually win that? Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think the water droplets, the, the minimal amount of water is okay, but... You know, you, you get him in, it, it's over. But I think I'm taking Mac, I'm taking David Dunn in this. I'm, I'm taking David Dunn. Dunn. Well, I think we have our first candidate. Yeah, I think that's right. At the end of the season of our podcast, we'll take our top two or three candidates and, and decide which ones. And maybe it'll be like kind of like a final four. And maybe Max Katie doesn't even make it to the finals. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, let's bracket I, that. I think, I think David Dunn's in the bracket. Yeah, I think David Dunn's in the final four now. There is nothing I love more than making a bracket and talking. <laughs> We got Max Katie, we got David Dunn, we need two more. That's right. All right, so you got that to look forward to. All right, moving on. You know, he's walking around looking at the trains, and he's trying to figure out, because he's still not convinced, Dunn is still not convinced that he has this, like, superpower, but he's looking at the trains and starting to, like, kind of realize, wow, I I was the only person that survived this massive train wreck where everybody Everybody died. died. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he has a flashback to the car crash that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier that ended his college football career. And while he's having this flashback, he remembers that, and he's probably remembered it the whole time, but as far as the movie goes, Audrey's trapped inside the car. Mm-hmm. Robin Wright's trapped inside the car. The car's starting to catch on fire. And he goes up to the car and literally just grabs the door and is able to rip the human jaws of life at this point, right? Rips the car apart and gets her out and saves her life. And and you start kind of like seeing this like, wow, he's getting it. He is like, he does have this power. He does have this like superhero strength. And, And he calls Glass up. And he admits, I wasn't injured in the car crash. Right. I've never been injured. I've never been sick. Yeah, and, you know, he kind of lied about being injured mm-hmm. so he could, like, stay with her because she hated football so much. Right. Once again, stupid, but I've never been injured. What am I supposed to do? hmm You know, I, I don't know what to do. So now we get that heavy beat score again that we had in the opening credits. That... hmm Yeah. And he's walking around like a... I don't know what it is in Philly, but Grand Central It's like a Grand Central Station. This is another... I love this scene. This is one of those scenes that I was like kind of jacked when I'm watching it the second time. I'm like, got the adrenaline, like, yeah, here we go. And I loved it. And he kept bumping into people and kind of seeing what they were doing and all that kind of stuff. And he bumps into this one guy, like he's like an orange jumpsuit janitor Mm -hmm. type guy. And he sees this thing in his head of him breaking into a house. Mm -hmm. You know, a guy opens the door and he just kind of forces himself in. So he decides to follow this guy. And he follows him. And of course, it's raining outside. Right. Yeah, because right. we got to put his kryptonite coming from the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so like if Superman was trying to fight Lex Luthor and a bunch of kryptonite was falling from the sky, mm-hmm. how effective would Superman be? Well, he'd have to have one of those lead vests that you wear at the dentist when they're taking x-rays <laughs> of your teeth. Then he'd be all right. Yeah, yeah. I guess he could survive it that way. And he change his cape, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right. And, and 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 it's funny because I I, I I joke about the cape, but there he Bruce Willis does have a metaphorical cape in this movie. Yes, even metaphorical. It's like his parka and his like jacket and all that really is his superhero. It is. Cape it's his. It's that his, protects him. Yes. from from the water. The kryptonite. From yes. his kryptonite. 
And so Dunn follows the guy back to the house. This scene, I'm a little... I know this was supposed to be the super-duper dramatic scene right. in this whole movie. So here's my number one beef with this. Okay. He walks to the front door, and there's a big pile of mail mm-hmm. on the ground. So does nobody miss these people? Because, <laughs> I mean, if there's like four days of mail piled on the ground, you think a neighbor and a relative, somebody would have called the cops by now. Somebody's missed work. Yeah, somebody's, somebody's called, missed work. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the, the dad's dead. Mm-hmm. We know that. And we're, we're about to find out what happens to the rest of the family. But, yeah, I guess they just weren't very social people because <laughs> nobody really missed them. And four days worth of mail piled up on the front door. Yeah. But anyway, uh, he goes in and the, the big bad guy in the yellow jacket is is there. And, and, you know, but Dunn doesn't necessarily see him at first. He finds two girls tied up and then ties them. I think it's maybe the two daughters, right, maybe. that's right. Something like that. Uh, he finds another woman tied up. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she's beat up. Right. She's beat up. And, and so- she's chained to a radiator. So, hang on a minute. Like, I'm watching this, and when was the last time you were in a nice suburban home with the radiator? When's the last time you were in a not nice urban home and saw a radiator? A radiator, also. I haven't seen a radiator since, like... Freaking before this movie was made. Also, reason number 74 not to have a radiator. Because everybody changed you to a radiator. Yeah, and it's got to burn a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to burn a little bit when you're changing the radiator. And he, he finds her tied up. And as he's like untying her, the bad guy shows up and shoves Bruce Willis out the balcony. And of course he falls into the pool, the pool. with a tarp covered over mm-hmm. it. And he gets caught up in the tarp, so he's really tied up in the water. And you think he's going to drown, but you know he's not going to. Right, right. You know, and, and next thing you know, you see a, a pole come into the water. Now, initially, I thought the pole was glass there with his cane. Oh, yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, but then I, I quickly realized that it was a pool pole. Mm-hmm. And apparently the two daughters that he initially... Who he had rescued. Yeah, he rescued, came down. So where's the bad guy? So, so, so somehow the bad guy... Doesn't notice that the two daughters have been untied and that they and everybody went outside. Else in the house is dead. And, and everybody else, yeah, and they went outside and it was somehow like, you know, he just shoves the guy out of the pool. It's like total, once again, and I know I've referenced this before, James Bond, bad guy syndrome. Yeah. Oh, I just shoved you out the window, you're dead. I'm That's moving it. on. Yeah. Well now I I did like this scene on one level. Did that scene remind you of any other scene when he, he tossed him into the pool like that? Uh poltergeist. See, to me, it was it. Totally... I just remember the pool and Poltergeist. Well, okay, so it totally brought but back. They, were, they weren't. That wasn't done. If I remember from Poltergeist, they were digging the pool. I think that's right. That's yeah, because Indian burial ground situation, right? yeah, or whatever. But I that scene reminded me immediately of the scene from Superman the movie, nineteen seventy eight, where Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor puts the the kryptonite necklace around Superman and shoves him into the water. And Superman oh, yeah. can't swim, and he's laying there at the bottom and struggling. And it, that scene was super disturbing to me when I saw it the first time. But I, I was watching, I'm like, this is just like in Superman, like the yeah. kryptonite. Yeah, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, and of course you know that M. Night stole from all those other things. Of course, of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, if he stole from Pulp Fiction, you know he stole from Superman. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so, but Dunn gets, gets out of the pool, he goes back in the house, and... The guy's like drinking a beer and he's going up to the lady that's the mom that's still tied up against the radiator. And Bruce Willis, Dunn, David Dunn sneaks up behind him and puts him in a chokehold and like starts to choke him out. 
And it's a little absurd here, but I kind of get where he was going. Because this guy's big. Yes. The bad guy's a the big man. The bad guy's a big man. Big man. Big man. And so, I mean, much bigger than Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. who's not a small man. Right. But, you know, Bruce Willis is, like, hanging onto his throat, choking him. And the guy's, like, trying to slam him against the walls. And it's, like, every time he slams him against the wall, it puts, like, a... Big dent in the drywall. <laughs> yeah. In the drywall. I'm, like, where are the studs? Cause, <laughs> yeah, because because they would put like a thirty inch like dent in the drywall, and I'm like, shouldn't there be a stud somewhere there? Because like, <laughs> says a fundamentally unsound, and b it's got a radiator. You're not going to want to buy this. And dead people. There's dead people. that. There's old dead people everywhere. You know, he eventually chucks a guy out, and you know, kills him, and everybody's free, and like he's a superhero. And the next day, or not the next day, but that night, he gets home, and he hangs up his wet parka in the closet. And on the back of his wet parka, it says security. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing that popped into my head is, you know, that's like his you know, superhero, superhero cape. cape. Yes. Yeah. And, and he must be security man. It's the worst. I mean, it's the worst. I love everything about what's going on here. But security man? Security man. I mean, do you think the guys who are really security guards watch that and are like, yeah, of course security man. <laughs> of course they did. Of course they did. Yeah, so so talking about superheroes, I mean, do you have a favorite? Yeah, so so a quick story about this movie. Um, this is a, a fairly short movie at an hour and 48, 49 minutes, and it's there's a ton wasted in it. This movie you could have toned down, and if you cut out all the chaff, it's it, you could make it in an hour. You could make it a short film. But when M. Night Shyamalan conceived of this film... Uh, it was actually a longer film, and he only used the first third of it. This was actually kind of the first act of this movie. Um, and he got rid of the rest of it and just decided to make it this this sort of superhero origin story. And when I saw it the first time, I thought it left me wanting something. But now I watch it, and I was like, perfect. I want the superhero origin story in and of itself, so I don't have to watch the superhero origin story Every time I rewatch something, like if I have to rewatch a Spider-Man movie where I see Peter Parker living with his aunt and going through an hour of all of that crap one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. Like I, I, it, I can't handle it. So I love what he did with this. And so my favorite superhero is Batman. Uh, I, I and and much like I like this, there's a human element to it that I really dig when it comes to the superhero. Yeah, well, and origin movies are are so overdone these days. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm I'm just as guilty of getting sucked into them because you want to know how did this start, you know, where did it come from. But it is just an overdone premise, especially when it comes to, like, superheroes. Now, yeah. my, Batman's definitely, like, really close to the top of the list. Now, if I, if I had to go back to, like, favorite, a good superhero origin movie – is one where you don't realize it's an origin movie. Right. The the I won't say the original, but the first Christopher Reeves Superman movie in the 70s when mm-hmm. we were kids. Yeah, yeah. Was an origin movie. That's a great movie. And it's a great movie. They go to Niagara Falls and everything. Yeah, but you see it's, there's him, some cheesy stuff with effects, but sure. th- for for what it is, it's really good. And and it's an origin story without being an origin story. Right, right. Because it's just this is a story, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so when you when you put like a Green Lantern movie out, 
while Green Lantern's like awesome and like doing all kinds of great things, and then two years later, it's like, oh, let's do the Green Lantern origin movie. It's kind of, eh, you know, it's interesting. It's like everyone wants to see that kind of stuff and learn about it, but it's not as authentic. I agree with that. Yeah. I thought Batman Begins was really good. Like the Christopher Nolan um, yeah. Batman that That right. I thought was well, excellent. Well, and, 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 I, and I'll give Christopher Nolan a pass on that, even though we had the other Batman movies with Michael Keaton. Yeah. And Ben and was ben, well, ben Affleck. Ben Affleck was in one. Clooney, Clooney killed the franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but it, he rebooted the franchise after it had been like out for a few years, mm-hmm. and he rebooted it in his own way. And he started with the origin story. Yes, which is what you do, right? I mean, a good movie. Like think of Star Wars. We saw Luke Skywalker as a teenager, essentially ascend to like a master Jedi Knight that like you know avenges his father and all that kind of stuff. When you brought the prequels in and you got the origin, it was just it kind was, of there was a lot of silliness. A lot of silliness. It was almost like trying to, like the writers and director were trying too hard mm-hmm. to create this story to align with. The story they already that they told. already did, and you're doing it many years later, and so I guess as tastes of viewers change, it's kind of hard to be true to what you did initially in terms of trying to develop these characters. And now I'm going to tell the story that I initially had, but I've got to do it to entertain audiences 20 years after I made the first movie. Right. It, to to me, it just seems like a, a you know a pickpocket. Yeah. From yeah. from Hollywood, I, you right? Know, I I know I can pick your pocket for another like you know hundred million. Yeah, easy. Yeah. So after he hangs his cape up, he goes and he carries his wife to bed and lays down with her. Mm-hmm. First time we've seen them laying in bed together. And then the next morning at the breakfast table, he shows his son the newspaper article about how he saved the family, and he kind of whispers to his son, "Yeah, you were right. You were right. That's you're, right. You're right. I, you know, I am a superhero." And the boy starts to cry. Mm-hmm. Why? Because your dad is security man, dude. <laughs> Why does the boy cry here? <laughs> it's like, can we get the kids out of the movie, please? <laughs> Isn't there like some like labor law in Hollywood where like a kid can't be in a movie for more than like two minutes? I mean, this is ridiculous. This is the stupidest. I mean, it's awful. It's like, why are you crying, kid? Oh, my dad's a superhero. Ah. Yeah, completely dumb. And then, the, and then it follows up with Don going to a comic book art show mm-hmm. back at Elijah's place. Yes. And he meets Elijah's mom for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, which is real nice. And she's like, oh, Elijah says you guys are becoming buddies and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and but the thing is, this is the first time that Don has actually reached out to Elijah. Mm-hmm. I mean, typically throughout this whole movie, the hour and a half leading up to this point, it's been Elijah that's been chasing Don down to get information or to tell him something. But now Don is actually reaching out to Elijah because he does realize I'm a superhero and you're the guy that's been encouraging me and you're the guy that can tell me what to do next. And you're the guy... You've got this vision, You have this vision. You're the positive influence that can, like, help me Mm -hmm. figure out how I can maximize my whatever Mm -hmm. as a superhero. And they're talking and all that type of stuff. And Elijah, for some reason, is like, you know, come back into my office. So they go back in the office and and, in a very kind of, like, blatant way... Elijah's like, I guess it's now it's time we shake hands. He said, I think this is time when we shake hands. Which... 
was seemed innocent at the time, but you knew what was about to happen. Right, and also it's interesting that they had never shaken hands before. You never see that, and this is the first time that they've actually physically touched one another. Well, it's kind of like in Sixth Sense, where yeah. Bruce Willis's character never physically touches anybody because right. he's actually dead. dead. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, this is a- sorry if you've never seen it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, well, it's it's twenty years later. You got to watch it. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're not we're not gonna like beat ourselves up over spoiling movies that are from the nineties, right? Um, but so they actually physically make contact and shake hands, and the moment that that happens, Don Bruce Willis's character starts seeing the plane crash. He sees him talking to a guy about the hotel, and he says that place is a fire trap. If anything happens on the first, second, or third floor, yeah. Okay, and 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 at the plane crash, everybody's out there watching it, and you see, um, you know, in the terminal, you see Elijah sitting there, just with his back to it, just just hanging out, and so you realize that he's orchestrated all of these things, and they and there are other clips of of disasters where people have had massive losses of life that Bruce Willis sees, you know, in his mind. Yeah, and this is our big surprise, right? From M Night, is that. Really, Elijah is the evil guy, innocently somewhat, but still has killed all, all these, these people innocent trying people to find the superhero. Trying to find the superhero. Right. Right. And of course, Dunn is shattered. Because mm-hmm. Dunn's like a good guy. Yeah. You know, and he's just shattered and he's like, I can't believe, you know, whoa, mind blown. You know, that Elijah has been the, the, the one that's orchestrated all this violence just to find me. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Just to find me and to identify me as a superhero. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, it, it, I, I, even though I knew what was going to happen when it happened, I hadn't seen it in 15 years. And I'll be honest with you, Jim, it kind of still kind of hit me a little bit. It was a great scene. Yeah. It, it's a it's a great scene to wrap that movie, and it, it is. And there's a lot to think about there when you're unpacking this guy who's killing all these people to try to find somebody to save other people, all that stuff. But it's a it's a really well done ending, you know, yeah, and, scene. And, and 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 so this movie ends then back how it started with just some script across the the screen that um, the Dunn called the authorities. Mm-hmm. They came in, they found evidence of terrorism, and now Elijah's in a yeah, mental hospital. And boom, that's the end. That's the end. And that's the end. That's boom, done, movie over, game over. And you know, I mean, this movie, you think about what I said earlier, and once again, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I'm just going to stand by it anyway, that the new movie, 20 million... Still not convinced on that. But they made this movie for $78 million and it grossed $248 million. Yeah, so that's a 4X return. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, this was a very good movie. It was a good very movie. commercially viable movie in its time, and there are an awful lot of people who love this movie. There are an awful lot of people, when we've talked about doing this movie to friends, they're like, oh, I love that movie. And uh, we talked about Tarantino a couple times tonight. This is his favorite M. Night Shyamalan film. He's talked about how much he Well, he puts it in his top 20 movies of all time. Yes, yes. Or top 20 movies since 1995. Yes, I yes. think is the list I saw. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a really good movie, and it's a shame that M. Night... I mean, he does carry it on for another movie or two with signs in the village. It's a shame this guy just didn't hold. Yeah, it is, because I think that his creativity and his ideas are really good. And his filmmaking is excellent. Again, we've kind of beaten this movie up over some scenes that were wasted, but when you think about the fact that this was initially the third of a screenplay that he stretched to a full film, 
okay, I'm not going to really hammer you too much for throwing in some extra stuff because you want to make a feature-length film. Yeah. Which is still a good story and some great camera stuff that he does and and some of the coloring that he does with like the, the dark green sort of texture in a lot of those scenes with David Dunn. It's There's some great filmmaking in this. Yeah, and well, and it's a movie. You know, we always ask ourselves when you when you would you want to see this movie again. And I, I actually want to watch this movie again in the near future without the obligation of like having to take notes and yeah, you know, talk about it and do those types of things. Now, once I see it one more time, I might not want to see it for another fifteen years after that. But I, I that was the one thing because I when I'm watching movies to prepare for the podcast, it's almost more work than pleasure. Right, right. And I talked about that a little bit last time. And I, I would like to watch this movie just in pleasure. Yeah, I would watch this movie again too. I was talking to, um, with my daughter in preparation for this, and and she was really interested in seeing Glass, and she said it looks really good. And I was like, well, then we need to watch Unbreakable first. And so I think we may watch it again uh, in the near future. So, so how would you rate this movie? What, what grade you give it? Um, I th- I think it, it's it's not an A. It, it's not a C. It's somewhere in the B range. I tend to lean a little towards B plus today, just because I feel like in our glut of superhero movies, this kind of stands out as a nice origin story and well acted. Because Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis show more nuance than they show in a lot of roles that they play. Um, so I'd, I'd go B to B-plus on that. Well, no, I'm going to give it a strong B-plus. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I would quite take it into A. And the only, But here's the thing, though. If M. Night would have continued making good movies like this for the last 20 years or 18 years, 19 years, however long it's been since this movie came out... I think we would look back at this movie and be, oh, it's an A. Right. I think that's right. I, yes. I think it would be like going back and watching Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. I totally agree with that. You know, but he hasn't done mm-hmm. that. So this was kind of at his peak. And so I think you kind of lose a, a spot mm-hmm. and lose a little bit of a grade because he couldn't sustain it. Because, and once again, that's his fault. Because he's writer, producer, and director. Uh-huh. He wants all the credit. You have to be consistent. You, yep. you got to carry it. And you had great actors, good story, you know, but there's just kind of something about it that still hangs in my head, even though watching this movie, it's not that I want more out of this movie. I think this movie's solid. Mm-hmm. I want more out of this director. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't think we're ever going to get it. Maybe not. I think that's entirely possible. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I hate to be harsh, but... I would probably bet that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it just it is what it is. And I, and I don't think he's ever going to budge. No. No. I, I think that's right. But he's not going to starve either. He's done well, and he's made a lot of money, and he's he is a, a very strong creative talent, so... I, he is, but he's not... He's not... How long... Hitchcock's been dead for, what, 25 years? Right. At least. And people still watch Hitchcock movies, and but I don't think twenty five years after M Night's death, people are going to be like going back, going, "Oh, you got to see these movies." No, I think that's right. It's I, not I, Rear Window. I, no, it that's exactly it's right. Not the Birds. He hasn't made anything as iconic as Psycho. No, I mean, not that anybody ever will, but uh, it, 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 there's nothing that is that's going to stand the test of time after no. we're gone. No, nothing, nothing. Yeah, I mean, he'll he'll be forgotten forty years after we're dead. Probably so. You know, he's not going. He's not the Beatles. No. 
<laughs> he's, he's, he's like Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the best they can do for tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so... What else you got? Anything, any other notes? Anything else you want to throw in there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I do want to reinforce this is a good movie. And so coming back to our premise of this podcast, is this movie still good? Yes. If you have not seen this movie in 15 to 20 years, if you've not seen it since it came out, it is worth your time. I totally agree. I totally, would watch it again. Totally worth your time. Two nuggets I want to get in here. Number one, the hair on Elijah was uh, inspired by Frederick Douglass. Really? I didn't get that in earlier. I, I meant to ask about the hair earlier. Yeah. Inspired by Frederick Douglass. So, That's good. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Douglass, who has glass in his name, may or may not be a coincidence, but interesting. Mm. The other thing is, uh, we always like to talk about awards, nominations. This did not win any Academy Awards, no Golden Globes. It did, however, win one award. What, what, what award did it It was win? an award that I had no idea even existed. The Golden Trailer Award for Best Horror or Thriller Trailer. Really? Yeah. So... I wonder you got that on your show. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Well, and I don't think M. Night's won any awards. No, no. Yeah. He was nominated for Oscars for director and writing for Sixth Sense, but did not win. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, tidbits that, that are neither here nor there, but kind of fun. Um, but that's all I've got. You got anything else? No, I mean, it's a good movie. I mean, I, I know we, we have fun beating this movie up because there's a lot of things that, you know... Uh, aren't exactly perfect. And, and and maybe that's what we are at this point with our podcast is we're like Elijah and we're still looking for that superhero perfect movie. Maybe so. And and maybe one day we'll find it. Now, I don't plan on killing anybody <laughs> to try <laughs> nope. to find it. No, nope. not going to kill anybody. Your train is safe, <laughs> Your train commuters is safe. of America. <laughs> Your plane is safe. Your hotel is safe. We're not going to kill anybody. But I think that we're still trying to find that perfect movie. This is a good movie, worth your time, but not a perfect movie. But maybe our next movie will be. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, so, well, th- we went long on this one because it was so much fun. Uh, we talked about this, and we knew this was going to be a fun one to do. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Come back and see us soon. Continue to look for us on all the social media platforms. Again, we appreciate everything that uh, we're getting from everybody that's listening. I hope everybody's having a happy new year, and we will see you next time on Is That Movie Still Good? This has been a No Land in Sight podcast production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.